Welcome to Mental Healthy, where we share the stories and expertise of professionals working diligently in the field of mental health. I'm your host today, Dr. Kenyon Knapp. I've got a special guest today, Dr. Keith Lahikainen. Welcome to the podcast, Keith. Thank you. Honored to be here. Why don't you give the listeners a little bit of your background educationally and things like that, just to give them a little context to where you're coming from? Sure. So I'm originally from Massachusetts, you know, born, bred, received most of my education in Massachusetts. Mm-hmm. I went to a small liberal arts Catholic college undergrad. I went to a state university, Fitchburg State University, for my master's in counseling. And then I transitioned to my clinical doctoral degree at the Massachusetts School of Professional Psychology in Boston, which is now called William James College. And then I served as a licensed clinical psychologist up in Massachusetts for a number of years before accepting a faculty position down here at Liberty University. And I transitioned down here with my family in 2017. And I've now become licensed in Virginia as well as a licensed clinical psychologist. And But most of my professional endeavors today are doing teaching and research and things like that. You've obviously got a rich history in the mental health fields. That's good because we've got listeners on all different mental health fields here. I know recently you've written an article about the trans theoretical model. And I'll be honest, we chatted a little bit today, but before you mentioned it today, I didn't have a clue (laughs) (laughs) what that was. So I wanted to give the listeners a feel for what is the trans theoretical model. This overarching broad idea of change theory is where the trans theoretical model or the TTM for short comes into play. And it was birthed in 1982 by psychologists James Prochaska and Carlo Di Clemente and another psychologist, John Norcross, who has since passed away. He was also in on a lot of the development of the model early on. It came out of their clinical experience in working with people with addiction and substance abuse problems. So they worked clinically inpatient as well as outpatient, and they started noticing kind of themes or trends in terms of where people were in the recovery process. And so they developed this five-tiered, now six-tiered stage model of change. And it's been well-received in the substance abuse and recovery field for many years. And the interesting thing about it is that it is now being applied to other areas, such as diet, nutrition, medical compliance or medication compliance, even sports with coaching and, and whatnot. Earlier, you were saying that this theory really, it's flexible it can be applied in lots of different directions. So what are these stages? You mentioned about five or six tiered stages. Sure. The first stage in the model is called the pre-contemplation stage. And it basically reflects people who are either unaware of their current status, condition, inability to change, or their active denial about it. So typically, from a substance abuse perspective, it would be someone who doesn't recognize they have a problem. They think their drinking is reasonable. It's fine. You know, I like to say in my classes, I don't have a problem with my drinking, but my wife does. And so this might be reflective of someone who's in this pre-contemplation stage. Once someone starts thinking, hey, wait a minute, you know, my wife says I have a problem. Boss is starting to get on me about having a problem. I got that DUI that has forced me now to go to court. But I'm just a social drinker. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. That's right. Do we say. (laughs) Right. So the person starts weighing, weighing the cost-benefit ratio 
of their behavior. And this would be considered the next stage, the contemplation stage. Is it like life circumstances sort of force people into pre-contemplation stage? Like you said, like the DUI or their marital problems or something like that might push them into it? It's possible that someone receives that wake-up call that, hey, whoa, wait a minute. I thought everything was okay or manageable. And yet all of a sudden I'm faced with this life-altering circumstance. Now, the model, even though it's a five to six tiered stage model, it does leave room for jumping stages. So there's another kind of theoretical perspective, what we call quantum change, and that someone could receive, they were in a car wreck because of their substance abuse, and they were regular substance-using individuals. But after that car wreck, they stop. They completely stop. They didn't go through the other stages, the contemplating, what is this behavior costing me? It was that instantaneous. So the model does leave room for that. So it's not a rigid, stratified stage model. So that pre-contemplation stage, if someone decides, you know what? The cost of my drinking, my substance abuse, is more than the benefit I'm receiving. Then they might start looking into, how would I actually stop? Should I go to my physician? Should I see a counselor? Do I need to seek out a detoxification center? Mm -hmm. And that would be considered the preparation stage, where the person has actually made a decision to investigate, what would it look like if I changed? And how would I go about doing it? So they're preparing for that change. If they actually then followed through and entered the detox facility, they got the prescription medication to help them with the withdrawals and come off the cigarette addiction, they would be then in the action stage where they're taking action. If they maintain that abstinence or use reduction for a period of time, they would be considered in the maintenance stage where the now sober abstaining behavior actually becomes the norm. So they're just maintaining now. And the trick with that, and I tell my students, my mom, my mom would kill me if she knew I was sharing this with you all, that she's an awesome low carb dieter. I mean, she's done the Atkins, the South Beach diet, you know, you name it, she's done it. She sets her goal of weight loss and she just knocks it out of the park every single time. She's great at taking action. But once she reaches the top of that hill, her reward is I can eat all the carbs I want now. So she's not good at maintaining. So the actions that got you to the top of that mountain are not necessarily the actions that will keep you at the top of that mountain. Now, you were saying earlier this is developed within like the addiction field per se, but you were saying that it applies to other things besides that. You mentioned medical and things like that. And, And when I'm hearing you describe this, I mean... This sounds to me like this could fit all the mental health disciplines. I mean, social work, psychology, counseling, pastoral, marriage, family. I mean, everything really, which is nice because some of the theories are more focused on one discipline or another. So right right now, this model is being used in a number of different settings. Yes. Okay. Yeah. There have been a number of articles, books being published, applying this principle to, again, the medical settings around medication compliance, treatment compliance. It's been used in diet and nutrition for a long time. 
when you think about it, people who suffer from diabetes and they oftentimes struggle with their diet and they'll oftentimes push back against loved ones or medical providers who want them to cut out you know, fast acting sugars in their diet. And the more loved ones push on them to do that, the more resistant, maybe the more secretive they become in those behaviors. So using this model here to understand where they are and how we can facilitate their own movement through these stages. You've used this model with your clients, right? Sure. Yes. A lot of the listeners are either practitioners in the field or students who are about to become professionals in the field. Let's sort of talk about applying this in a clinical setting somewhere. Let's say the person listening is in a practice somewhere and they have clients coming in either with addiction issues or other stuff. Give us a little bit of a feel for how you would use this with Joe Schmo client that walks sure, in the door. Sure, sure, sure. I love Joe Schmo. Yeah. He's one of my favorite clients. But again, the name of the model is the trans-theoretical model of change. It is not theory-based in and of itself. It's meant to complement any other theoretical perspective that a counselor or a clinician might be coming from. So if someone uses CBT, if they're using ACT, DBT, whatever it may be, this model can still inform their practice. And so the idea is that clients who come into treatment, come into counseling, they may not be there for the reasons you think they're there. And they may not be there under their own choice. It may be a spouse, a loved one, an employer, or ordered. (laughs) And so what ends up happening if we miscalculate their readiness to change, we end up trying to force these individuals into taking action to change. And if someone is in a state of pre-contemplation, or even contemplate, they're contemplating, they're saying, hey, wait a minute, I think I might have a problem. Good, take action. Whoa, 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 slow down. And the clinician's like, what? Slow down, didn't you, you signed up to come into counseling to change this issue? No, they really didn't. They came in to work through their ambivalence about their behavior that might resolve into taking action. And so if a clinician can assess what stage of change their client is likely in, they can then work with them to the next stage. So what this really is, is sort of like understanding the context of your client. I mean, people like to talk about context a lot lately. We're all in this continuum of willing to change or not. And this whole model creates not necessarily a hard stage model, but it creates that continuum and it helps you conceptualize where they are in that process. And that's helpful too, because I just think about how, like you said, you can apply it to lots of different theories. Now, I've heard you also in the article you recently wrote, you apply this to Christian clients. So so there's some faith applications to all this. Sure. How could this relate to Christian listeners? Maybe before I touch on that, I just want to make a comment about- It's not a linear stage model, meaning that someone always moves from one stage to the next. It's actually fluid. Mm -hmm. And the authors, James Prochaska and DiClemente, talked about it as being a spiral model, meaning that clients, even within a session, Mm -hmm. 
could vacillate between coming in seemingly ready to take action and then you engage the client and all of a sudden they start regressing back to, wait a minute, I'm back to contemplation here. <laughs> I'm oh, yeah. thinking about this. I just wanted to add that in in case folks were kind of wondering, well, wait a minute, my clients don't just you know take off in this one direction. But yeah, so I started thinking about it in terms of faith and people coming to faith, an area of research that I'm really interested in and started doing some work in subsequent to my clinical training. And I started looking at this model and I said, wow, this really starts to remind me of people who they don't ascribe to a particular faith mm -hmm. and certainly not the Christian faith, yeah. or they've been dabbling in it, wondering about it. And oftentimes in efforts to share my faith with people, overt attempts to share my faith can be met with resistance. And this idea of at least perceived forcing onto someone else, another idea, another way of doing things right can cause what we term psychological reactance. And so that reactance is that a person feels a potential threat to their autonomy. And in reaction to that, they start putting up walls or they start pushing back. Or if they're ambivalent, they actually jump to the other side of the ambivalence, meaning someone could approach me and say, hey, you're a Christian. Tell me about that Jesus. And it doesn't really make sense to me. And then I start, I'm like, wow, this guy is really interested in hearing about my faith. And then I start sharing the faith with them. And as I'm doing that, they start criticizing or poking holes in what I'm sharing. And the more I share, the more they start becoming defensive. And it's kind of like taking that other side of the, what we call the ambivalence. That makes sense. And I know our listeners are all over the country right now. But they may not know, I grew up in New York myself, mm. not, not too far from yes. Boston where you were. And in the Northeast, there's a much higher percentage of what we call spiritual nuns, per yes. se. N-O-N-E-S, not N-U-N-E-S. <laughs> <laughs> there's a lot of people who just are rejecting all faith and just yes. are skeptical and all that. So this model could apply to nuns or people from a particular faith as well, sure. not necessarily Christianity. Sure. As you began to apply this model to faith, what were some of the angles and applications you saw? Yeah, yeah. So I started thinking about, you know, individuals who, let's use the nuns as the example, yeah. you know, they don't have a faith or they just kind of have this, you know, generic, you know, spirituality that maybe there's a higher being out there. Maybe there's this, you know, kind of universal mechanism of right versus wrong but I don't necessarily ascribe to a particular belief system. And I'm pretty happy and content with that. Mm -hmm. I get to maybe construct my own model of reality and morality. Mm -hmm. And so I would consider that person from a Christian perspective to be in a state of pre-contemplation. Mm -hmm. They're satisfied in their current status and behavior, Christian terminology. I would see that person as unawakened to the faith, spiritually dead, having a heart of stone to the message of the gospel of Jesus. And oftentimes as a Christian, if we encounter folks who are in that pre-contemplation stage, as evangelists, we may want to get them to action, which is, hey, this is who Jesus is. This is what he has done for you. 
will you take action? Will you respond to that message? And not always, but oftentimes individuals will dig in their heels, say, hey, whoa, wait a minute, buddy, back off. I'm not ready for that. Like you're, you're really pushing on me like a used car salesman to make this decision, buy this car today before you leave the lot. It won't be here tomorrow. Yeah. And what I have thought about through this model is if we can engage those individuals and say, hey, how is your spiritual life? What's the status of your spiritual life? How have you worked through and made sense of meaning and purpose in the universe? And I start getting them to contemplate what they believe. This is actually facilitating their movement into the next stage, the contemplation stage. Now, once they start contemplating, you know, the next phase would be to get them to think about making a decision. What would it be like to have a prescribed set of beliefs? What would it be like to commit to a faith? Now, of course, the resolution of that could always be something other than responding to Christ's offer. And that's not imposing anything exactly. as a therapist that's talking through what their beliefs are and what that would be like for them if they decided to go this direction or that direction with their faith process. Exactly. I bring that up because, you know, whenever you talk about faith, people try to accuse people of any faith of sure. trying to impose it, even if you're just talking about it. You yes. Know? I mean, this whole model was, again, born out of the substance abuse movement, was trying to honor the individual's autonomy and getting the person facilitating their own decision-making processes. So it's not imposing, but it does acknowledge that in substance abuse recovery, the bias of the clinician is recovery. From a Christian perspective, the bias of the believer is that I want this person to come to faith in Christ, but I'm still going to honor the work of the Holy Spirit. I'm still going to honor the person's responding to that offer. And it's not that they respond to faith in Christ for us to put a notch in our lipstick case or anything or impose anything. It's that you want what's best for them and you know that it's been best for you. So if you want beneficence, yes. to use some ethical terms, if your faith in Christ has been beneficial to you, you want what's beneficial for others. And it's not that you're trying to impose it on them, but you know how it brings meaning and purpose to your life. Everything you're saying is like pushing all my buttons mentally because <laughs> I've worked in addictions. Glad I could help. Yeah. Well, good. I, like, I've worked addictions in the past too, yes. some. And people who are in addictions, if they get to the deeper levels, they have friends dying from the addictions. Sure, sure. And so when you start dying, it gets into all those existential <sighs> issues. And well, gosh, is there anything after this life? And you know, is there a God or is there a heaven or hell and all that stuff? And people who have friends dying, they think about that stuff. Sure. And it's funny. It's all the people in the Northeast where we grew up yes. who are more cognitive about it all, who don't want to talk about religion and all that. Right. And resist it all, who don't want to talk about it. But the addicts, they're talking about it. Yes. You know, my buddy, he OD'd the other day and yes. he's dead. Now, is he with God or not? I mean, you know, they talk about that. This is practical, even though some listeners or some people in society may not be comfortable with it. It's so relevant. Well, that's cool that you see how it applies to different areas of faith. 
Now, I've heard you use a few phrases before we got on today. You talked about change language, status quo language, things like that. Sure. What does that all mean in regards to the trans theoretical model? How do we understand where someone is in terms of the stages? And subsequent to the TTM, your listeners may be familiar with the motivational interviewing approach. And that approach was very early on married to and utilized the trans theoretical model of change. And motivational interviewing is an approach that pays attention to the language that people use in terms of making changes in their lives. For example, if I approach someone and said, you know, hey, I noticed that you lost your job because of your drinking. What's going on? How can I help you? Share what's going on. And the person says, yeah, you know, it really wasn't my drinking. I think the boss just really didn't like me. Hmm, interesting. Okay. But so they said it was, you know, your wife shared that it was your drinking. Well, yeah, you know, there was some of that in there. Are you thinking about making some changes in your life to kind of rectify this problem? Yeah, you know, I, I might. I received a card from my boss with some information about an employee assistance program. and I, I might follow that up. I don't know. All of a sudden, you know, might, I could follow that up. That's indicative of language not endorsing change versus someone who in the same scenario, and I encountered them and they said, hey, I can't believe this happened to me. Wow, this is a real wake-up call. I need to get my act together. Whoa. I'm acknowledging the issue. I've awakened to it, and I need to make this change. So those are language markers that we can pay attention to in regard to where the person might be in the process of making change. Folks who have clinical experience, they're very attuned to active listening and tuning in to what people say, to use kind of that third eye, so to speak, of where you read between the lines of what the client is saying and what they're doing, really hooking into paying attention to language and then reflecting back to the client. Hey, I hear you say you might try that. What would get you to try that? Or on a scale of 1 to 10, with 10 being, I'm definitely going to try it, and 1 being, eh, probably not, where are you? And if the person says, I'm at a 5, I don't then try to get them to a 10. I actually try to, you know, what would it take to get you to a 6? And so, it, again, it's meeting them where they're at and facilitating their own movement to that next step. Well, that's cool. I totally see how language expresses where they are in the process and how language can also sort of reinforce the way they talk about it can reinforce wanting to stay in one stage or not. And, sure. And the questions you ask can move them to different ways of talking about whatever their struggle is. I know some of the listeners probably go, wow, this sounds like a really applicable model. It sounds really like I could marry this to what I'm already doing. And sure. this gives a better framework to my whole therapy process. If that's the case and a listener loves this, what are some recommended books or articles or things like that you would recommend that they read about this? Yeah, wow. So the literature has pretty much been flooded with articles and books about using the TTM in a number of different settings. Kind of the go-to seminal article yeah. is from Prochaska and DiClemente back in 1982. Mm -hmm. 
So going back a ways, both authors have gone on to publish a number of books in more recent years that have taken the model to you know, kind of the next level. I would recommend to readers, I would start with the authors, you know, James Prochaska and Carlo Di Clemente and searching for their most recent books, as well as exploring the TTM in any particular area that they're working in or interested in. So it might be the TTM in nutrition, in personal training, in athletics, that would be my general kind of approach. And Now, I know you wrote an article recently yourself. Tell our listeners about that a little bit. Sure. So we have a, an in-house kind of journal, Faith in the Academy, here at Liberty University. And it's a journal that is trying to orient current issues and practices in education and outside of the academy as well, to a degree, in regard to the faith. And so this most recent journal publication that's coming out is going to be focusing on faith deconversion, how someone who professed to have the Christian faith, faith in Christ, has now deconverted. They've fallen away from the faith. What we would, you know, in classical theology, we're talking about apostasy. So I was invited to write an article from a social science perspective, how we might start to understand this deconversion process psychologically. It was a divine opportunity, in my opinion, that I just happened to be kind of working in this area and had done a presentation down in in Atlanta at the Christian Association for Psychological Studies in March, pre-pandemic, which I know we both went to and traveled down together. Mm -hmm. So it was a perfect opportunity to offer the application of this model in understanding someone who seems to be falling away from their once professed faith. So you're seeing a lot of application of this theory to that, like the pre-contemplation, all these stages. Yes. It applies to faith completely or to a large degree. Certainly in my opinion, and I'm making the case for that. Yeah. And again, it's not meant to replace, compete, substitute traditional spiritual interventions like prayer or, you know, evangelism, discipleship practices. Mm -hmm. The case that I'm making is that this particular model can offer a framework to use those spiritual disciplines and approaches and working with people in a way that's psychologically informed. And my kind of view, and and I'm sure the view of many integrationists, Christian psychology integrationists, is that, you know, God is the divine author and creator of our psychology. He created us this way and that he can work through our spirituality, our psychology, our social relationships, our context, as you mentioned earlier. Mm -hmm. He can work through all those pieces. And I make the case that he does work through all of those in bringing people to faith. And so that any approach that we take that is holistic, that can leverage those different areas would maximize the potential for helping folks. When you say all that, it makes me think of Romans ten seventeen, which says faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And so even for a person who's not lapsed in their faith, who's not leaving the faith, we're all growing in our faith. Right. And so we're either growing or going the other direction. <laughs> and of course, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And if we are discipling ourselves or being discipled by somebody else, we are hearing God's word and then it grows our faith. Like when I read my Bible, I mean, 
I think of Hebrews 4.12 about the word of God is active and living and and it grows in me yes. as I read it. Yes. But then I almost think there's a principle there too of if faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God, maybe faith in other things comes by hearing other things. And of course, those other things are not living like God's word. But if you keep hearing that, you know, the Dalai Lama is the answer to the world's problems mm -hmm. <laughs> or whatever, or some other sure. spiritual belief, you hear it long enough, you start to buy it. Sure. Just like we were joking earlier about the car salesman. Sure. If he tells you the the Yugo is the greatest car, <laughs> right, right. and you hear Yugo is wonderful long enough, and Yugo is better than Toyota, right. you might end up buying a Yugo. That's right. That's <laughs> right. I usually sure. end on this with most of my guests. We had a lot of questions and all I tried to ask you, and I tried to get the big picture, but did I leave out anything, or did you come in here wanting to share with the listeners today any special points about the trans-theoretical model that I haven't asked you about yet? Wow. You know, I could talk about this all day long, right? I could yeah. offer up a, a whole bunch of stuff on it. And just even being able to chat with you has been such a great privilege because it continuously helps me kind of think through and work through the application. But I think the, the biggest takeaway, that pearl in the oyster uh -huh. for me, is that it's a hope-inducing model that, you know, for many folks who have lost someone to substance abuse issues, mm -hmm. there comes a point when you start to feel like there is no hope mm -hmm. and that relationships are severed, people kind of go off in their own direction, families are split apart, relationships are broken. And from a faith perspective, from a Christian worldview, you know, I think about the prodigal son and how at one point how the father must have felt that he had lost his son, that there was no hope perhaps or only a sliver of hope through faith mm -hmm. that his son would someday come back. And I think this model offers a perspective for loved ones in dealing with those people who have seemingly fallen away whether it be fallen away in terms of substance abuse or other mental health issues or relationship issues, and certainly in regard to faith, that the inclination of people, when you start losing someone, when the sand is you know, slipping through your fingers, the instinct is to grab, hold on tighter, as tight as you can. And of course, that just facilitates the sand falling out even more quickly. And so, with people, the reaction when people don't respond the way we want them to or they're not where we want them to be is to push harder, mm -hmm. to try to grab hold of them and to make them change. And all that does is generate what we call that psychological reactance mm -hmm. where people dig in their heels. And so this model offers hope in that we can meet people where they're at. We have a way of engaging with them that honors their autonomy, mm -hmm. but also honors our perspective mm -hmm. that recovery or coming to faith in Jesus is the ultimate truth and that we have confidence in those things mm -hmm. and that if we continue to care and relationally engage people, that the truth will end up winning out. Mm -hmm. And so facilitating change processes is, in my mind, a hope-inducing practice. There's no guarantee that people will resolve their ambivalence or make the changes that we hope they do, but it offers us that guideline and that framework. The essence of the hope in all this is that people can change. Yes. 
Yes. Because when people lose hope, they normally lose hope because they believe they can't get better. Exactly. When I work with suicidal clients, yes. most suicidal clients don't want to die. Right. Most of right. them just believe that whatever their pain is, it's not going to change. And when they feel like it's not going to change, then they kill themselves. The essence of the hope here is that this model is all about change yeah. and that people can change. And if they couldn't change, what's the use of all of our mental health fields? That's right. I mean, like we're all wasting our time if that's not true, that people can change. And so obviously we believe they can change. Now, it's hard. Change sure. is hard. We, God sure. knows we all know that. But they certainly can change. And if they can change and if it can get better, then maybe they won't jump off that bridge. Maybe Amen. they won't pull Amen. the trigger. Yes. Well, thank you so much, Keith, for coming today and sharing about this. This is really neat. And it's nice to have a guest like you because some of my guests come in and they speak about something real specific to one field or another. But what you're sharing today applies to every single listener. I believe so. And yeah. um, that's really neat and really practical. So thanks for coming today. We appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Mental Healthy. Please be sure to subscribe for more episodes and share the podcast with your friends and colleagues. You can find this podcast on all your favorite podcast platforms. We hope you join us next time for more on Mental Healthy. Music for this podcast is licensed under Creative Commons by Excel Music Publishing at freemusicpublicdomain.com. Music